Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are The Natural Selection. On today's show... The Super Colony. <laughs> they could be here already. Dun, dun, dun. That's a lot of ants. It's a lot of ants. <laughs> yeah, it looks like me and it sounds like you. So now we're bringing all the strands together. Yeah, tying it all together in a neat little bow. I, I've never had as visceral reaction to one of your rundowns of an animal. We just carpet bomb their habitat. They have to die. Jack Anthony Baddams. Yes. You, <laughs> I think if you're going for what I think you're going for, you could have just used my middle name. Oh, Andrew. Yeah. Of course. Well, Jack Anthony Baddams. Yeah. We're here to talk ants. Good. Yes. Excellent. Finally. Finally. Yeah, I mean, we've been a couple of times, we've referenced how mad ants are and how much we'd like to properly delve into them. Exactly. So I thought I'd start with a quick game, a classic game, yeah, if you will, yeah. of Global Ant Population Maths Question Bonanza. Wow. Coming to a <laughs> tea time quiz show near you. Exactly. So play along if you're at home and then DM all your answers to Jack. <laughs> He's on. That's Jack Anthony Adams <laughs> at MySpace. <laughs> right. There are an estimated yep. eight hundred million videos on YouTube. Do you think there are the same? <laughs> what we're doing here is we're going to work our way up to the global ant population. Okay. There are an estimated eight hundred million videos on YouTube. Okay. Do you think there are the same five times as many or ten times as many people on Earth? Okay, so there's eight billion people on Earth. Yeah. So that's me trying to work out what the difference between a a hundred million and a billion is. But ten times. Correct. Yes. Yeah, and we're doing some some roundings here exactly. So there's ten times as many people with 7.8 odd billion people on Earth. Okay. So we're rounding up. Right. Ding. We're now at 8 billion. I'm taking that. Do you think there are the same five times as many or 10 times as many photos and videos posted on Instagram in total than there are 8 billion people on Earth? The same number of photos and videos, five times as many photos and videos on Insta or 10 times as many photos and videos on Insta? I think... I'm going to say I think there's five times as many, I think. Ding. Yeah? yeah. Oh, get in. I was yeah, I just think, you know, not everyone's on Instagram, but the people that are, they post a lot of pictures. Five times as many with an estimated forty billion photos and videos uploaded to Instagram. So here's a bit of self reflection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think there are the same two and a half times as many or five times as many stars in the Milky Way? So we're on, what did you say? It's 40 billion. Uh, I think there are, oh God, I mean, I'm really flying blind here. I think, I'm going to say it's going to be something mad like there is the same amount. There are two and a half times as many stars in the Milky Way with 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. (laughs) Do you think, we're halfway through, do you think there are the same two times as many or four times as many trees in the Amazon 
than the Milky Way. Then there are stars in the Milky I Way. I would have. I, well, I mean, I'm lost because I would have thought there were more stars in the Milky Way than trees in the Amazon. We're, we're, we've we've launched ourselves into the ludicrous numbers bit. So yeah, what? Yeah, I'm really lost. So I don't know. Like, wait, what were it? Two two and a half times again. So it was two times, but there are two times. four times as many with an estimated 390 billion trees. What? Making up the Amazon rainforest. If somebody had told me that there were that many trees, 390 billion trees in the world, I would have believed them as, well, that sounds like a stat that, you know, has to been checked out. It's the trees world. We're just living in it. Jesus. Right. Do you think there are the same one and a half times as many or three times as many questions in this quiz as there are searches on Google in a year? God. The same. Three times as many, with 1.2 trillion oh my Google searches a year. This Bear in similar. mind, what we're working up to I know. is the number of ants yeah, on Earth. I know. <laughs> right. Two questions to go. Do you think there are five times as many, 10 times as many, or 20 times as many cups of water in Loch Ness? <laughs> Which is so big oh, that you can fit God. all of the water of all the lakes in England and Wales into Loch Ness. 20 times. Correct. With 31.5 trillion cups of water in Loch Ness. So finally, do you think there are 200 times, 400 times, or 600 times that number ants on Earth? I, I've got to go big. 600. I've fucked my maths up. Oh. That doesn't work at all. Fuck. Well, the point is there's 20 <laughs> quadrillion ants. That's mad. <laughs> 20 quadrillion. I, I wouldn't have even thought quadrillion was a number. No, I've written here 200, 400, or 600 times as many ants, and then I've put 15 times as the answer. So <laughs> the point is the numbers are right in that it goes 31.5 trillion to 20 quadrillion. Jesus. But that puts us at umpteen times more ants on Earth than stars in the Milky Way. That was question yeah. number like three. Yeah. And more ants on Earth than Google searches. In a year. More ants on Earth than cups of water in Loch Ness. Famous unit. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a lot of ants. It's a lot of ants. Yeah, I think my fav- my favourite one is there's more ants on Earth than there are stars in the Milky Way. I think that's a good one. Yeah. By like an order of magnitude. And slotting in there, though, that there are more trees in the Amazon yeah. than there are stars in the Milky Way. Yeah, that's also a shout out to the trees in this ant special. No, that was a big that was a big moment for me, finding that number. Yeah. So, like I said, if you were playing along, DM your answers to Jack. <laughs> a, B, C. <laughs> B, B, A. And so... Okay, don't bother. Let's get to the bottom of what an ant is right oh right so there's a lot of them but what are they so there's over thirteen thousand eight hundred species of ant on earth with an estimate of around about twenty two thousand species probably because we haven't okay so we reckon we've only we've still got like almost ten thousand species left to find yeah gotta catch them all yeah right exactly yeah a big chunk yeah um, so I tried to put this into context for kind of what does that number mean in a sense. There's 65,000 species of vertebrates. Uh-huh. And when we compare it to vertebrates, we can see that ants look like a real big slice of the pie. So there's 11,000 species of birds. So we've got yeah. more ants than we have birds. Yeah. 12,000 species of reptiles, more ants than we have reptiles. Only 6,400 species of mammal, 
we need to pull our finger out. Yes. Loads more ants than mammals. But when we put this into perspective with the insects, there's roughly one million described species of insects out of an estimated five million possible total. How, how do you look at like the possible total? I haven't a clue. <laughs> like, I thought that as well. I haven't a single clue. Because it's like, if we don't know they're there, yeah. how do you quantify how much you don't know is there? Yeah, it's like we could estimate the population of unicorns, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, there could be a million. <laughs> there could be a million unicorns. Yeah. We just haven't found them yet. Yeah. Yeah. But of that million described, there's four dominant orders which make it up. Uh-huh. We've got the beetles. Yeah. 386,000 species of beetles. 386,000. And they're the one that our pal, is it Alfred Russell Wallace? Yep, I thought you were going to say Ash Whiffin, but... <laughs> also our pal. Yeah, more, I would argue more of our pal, actually, than Alfred Russell Wallace. <laughs> but he, we talked about him and him studying beetles. And was it him that said the phrase, or was that somebody else, if God is to exist... So, so I'm paraphrasing, but if God to exist, he, then he must have had an inordinate fondness for beetles or something like that. Because he made so many different... That sounds species. like a very Victorian gentleman. Yeah, it's some sort of old-timey naturalist, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, beetles, 386,000 species. Lepidoptera. Uh, butterflies and moths. Indeed. 157,000 species of them. Yeah, I would have thought that was a lot less than beetles. Another big slice of the pie. Yeah. Then we've got the diptera, which are the normal flies, sons butter. <laughs> 155,000 species of them. The dry flies. The dry flies. And then we get to the order that the ants live in, and this is the hymenoptera, which are the ants, wasps, bees, and sawflies. No idea what a sawfly is. We shan't be speaking about them again. Yeah. And there's about 116,000 species of those. So, you know, I don't really know kind of what to do with that. So but the, the ants are in the same family as your bees and your wasps? Ants are, it turns out, basically a very, very specialised wasp. And I'm sure there's someone out there who's going to doubt that and tweet me and at me and be like, well, actually, if you look at the thingy. But of the Hymenoptera, which is this whole order of insects, they're basically all wasps, except for the three branches of that tree, which forked like right at the end of that tree. So it's not even a branch, it's like a twig. Yeah. Like one twig of wasps became ants, one twig of wasps became bees, one twig of wasps became the sawflies. Everything else in that are wasps. So in a weird way, ants are a very, very specialist wasp. And if you look at one, you can see that. I'm yeah. just thinking now, like you look at an ant, especially on flying ant day when they're all flying around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, they're very wasp. Yeah, that kind of like, like skinny waist and yeah. big ass and all the rest. But yes, so, you know, there's like more ants than there are vertebrates in any rational sense. Yeah. Uh, well, not all vertebrates, but there's far less ants than other insects. But I just thought we'd have a look at the numbers there. So, there we go. Now, what's one of the big things we know about ants? Co uh, colonies. Colonies, exactly. So, across all the species of ants, colony sizes range pretty mad so some species just live there'll be about 30 of them living together in a twig right the way up to estimates of over 306 million individuals that's crazy so that's the spectrum we're working with yeah. do you have so you don't have solitary ants based on what i read no no yeah but again right, there's no. an estimated 10,000 <laughs> species that we haven't found yet yeah so there could be one of them 
we haven't found it because he's just that, healing uh, on his own. We could estimate that there are 10,000 species of solitary ant. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're in the realm of estimates now, yeah. so we're going to throw our hat in. I'm actually going to estimate that there's more. There's a million species of solitary ant. Yeah. There's just one solitary ant in each colony of other ants living on their own. But the average colony is between 20,000 to 100,000 ants. And we're going to come back to that 306 million number because that is absolutely insane. So if you're all bandied together and you're all living together, how do you organize yourselves into something remotely coherent? And this is where ant biology starts to really take over in a way. So a typical colony will consist of one or more egg-laying queens accompanied by numerous sterile female workers and soldiers and then the males, uh, you mentioned flying, they're the seasonally winged insects but the majority of everything it's a sisterhood Yeah. and I didn't know, I always thought there was just like one queen at the top of every colony but it seems like some species will have multiple queens Mm. Uh, you know Collab. Co-regaling. Yes, if we will. What I'm going to call it. Yeah, like sort of medieval Europe or something, you know. Yeah. Except they were all at war with each other, whereas this is just one colony. Either at war with each other or in bed with each other. Yeah. So maybe it's more like the Saudi royals. They have a lot of royals, but there's still one at the top, isn't there? They don't. There's just chief royal. Yeah. So. But yeah, that's what ants are up to. Yeah. Okay. Some, Some of them have several queens, and they're all. So so the only. All right, thinking males only exist in ant colonies to breed. Like they're only created when the time is to go and, uh, you know, sire some new offspring from another colony or whatever. All of the, like you said, all of the workers, all of the soldiers are female. Yeah. 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 That's I mean, again, there could be one species in those, but, but yeah. in general. Yeah. Everything we know suggests that, yeah, it's just the, the women at it, which is cool. So in keeping everyone in rank and file, ant colonies are eusocial, which is, according to definitions, the highest and most perfect form of social living in organisms. Humans are regarded as semi-social at best. Oh. Because we've had the odd world war. We have. We have had the odd world war. <laughs> that little cheeky human habit of just bombing the shit out of other humans i was just gonna make it a little quip like oh i describe myself as semi-social but i've never committed a war crime <laughs> so i had to do an american visa application recently and one of the questions in that is have you ever been involved or partaken in genocide and it's like who do you think you're catching yes no don't know <laughs> <laughs> prefer not to say exactly exactly so the description of eusociality being the most perfect form of social, mm-hmm. it's a bit, um, they've sort of got no choice. Is it? Is it this utopia? Because they're not, they're sterilized. But I think it's looking at it in terms of how an organism can regulate itself as opposed to the freedoms of the individual within that organism. Good point. Right? The community. Exactly. Works. Yeah. So from Efficiently. from the from the perspective of how the species maintains itself, it's like there's not a toe out of line. Yeah. Right. Yeah. From the individual's perspective, there's no climbing the ladder. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so eusociality is defined as social living within an organism that exhibits things like cooperative brood care, so including caring for the offspring of other individuals 
overlapping generations within a colony of adults, because mm-hmm. Levant's born at all different times, and a division of labor into reproductive and non-reproductive groups. Like you said, there's no climbing the ladder. Yeah. You're either having kids or you're just... That's the mad thing about ants. It's like every other animal that I can think of is trying to make more of itself. Mm. And then there's just like the majority of ants aren't. So I can get to that in a minute Okay, as to what's going on there. If you're listening, pause now, fetch a pen and paper. You're going to need it in a minute because that is mad trying to explain that. <laughs> I was almost going to skip it out because I'm like, this is too convoluted to try and get across. But anyway, we'll come to it. So you've got reproductive and non-reproductive groups, a division of labor, but the division of labor in eusociality creates specialized behavioral groups that are sometimes referred to as castes. Castes. So this is where we have soldier ants, worker ants, this kind of roles is a key part of eusociality. Right. And what also specifically distinguishes eusocial groups is that when an individual is like committed to one caste, to one role, it loses the ability to function in other roles. Right. So if you're a worker, you cannot be a soldier. If you're yeah. a soldier, you could, yeah. 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 And this is even more amplified in some ant species where it's not just behaviorally that you're doing run roll over the other, but some ants, as we know, the soldiers will be like huge and the workers really small. So yeah. ants take it a step further in actually physically molding their yeah. roles. That's mad that they've like literally built. Because when you like in human terms, our soldiers are just humans. Yeah. We put through a training program. Yeah. In ant world, their soldiers are like super soldiers. And I worked out how they actually regulate the numbers of each type of ant in the colony. I was going to say, how do they decide when and who to make, who becomes what? So again, big mystery. It's something that science hasn't fully cracked yet. But for the people who are working on it, this is one of the kind of where we're up to, basically. So grab that pen and paper. So it appears to be regulated by a pheromone that soldier ants give off. If there are less than 5% of the colony as soldier ants, there is not enough of the pheromone being produced to inhibit soldier ant production. But once there are roughly 5% of soldier ants moving around the colony, they are giving off a pheromone that inhibits soldier ant production. So lab populations which have been engineered to be 100% worker ant will create soldiers because there's no soldier pheromone suppressing other soldiers. But lab populations which have been engineered to be 100% soldier will only produce worker ants. So the the presence of soldier ants stops, well, when you get to a certain extent, stops soldier ants being made? Yeah. Wow. And that cool. line seems to be about 5%. Wow. So Which is be, not very many. Not very many. Not very many at all. It's not a big military. No, but... Well, let's think about that. I don't even, I can't even begin to work out how big our military is relative to the popular 5%. Actually, it's not 5%. 60 million people. So 10 million would be 6 million. So a 5% military would be 3 million people. We're nowhere near that. We're nowhere near that. So ants have a massive military. Ants have a massive military. And so you mentioned kind of the thing about individuals wanting to make more of themselves, but ants having this huge workforce which does nothing. Right. As in it doesn't reproduce. It doesn't reproduce. So, in humans, pen and paper time. Okay. Because this is convoluted and we're going to go through ant chromosomes. Whoa. 
In humans, your mum has two sets of chromosomes. Your mum has two sets of chromosomes. <laughs> and your dad has two sets of chromosomes. And my dad's chromosomes can beat up your dad's chromosomes. Okay, but each parent has two sets of chromosomes. You get one set from each parent. So when it comes to your siblings, you share 50% relatedness. Yeah, okay. so 50% of your genes, if you've got a brother or sister, you share. Give or take. Yeah, yeah. With, with your sibling. Yeah, exactly. In ants, the females have two chromosomes. Like us. But the males only have one set, only have one chromosome. They only have a single strand, right? And this causes some mad shit. So males are produced by unfertilized eggs. So basically a queen, without being fertilized, her DNA will split. One chromosome, one chromosome, and that one chromosome egg will just become a male. Whoa. Females, the workers, the soldiers, etc., are produced by fertilized eggs. The queen has yeah. to mate to get the male's new chromosome in there. This means that males don't have a father, but all females do have a father. And because the males only have one set of DNA to give, it means that all of the females have the exact same copy of their dad's DNA. Right. Compared to us, where we have like a one in two chance of the side of DNA that we get yeah. from our dad. Yeah. All females that are made share the same parental yeah. DNA or paternal DNA. So this means then a step further, that because they all have the exact same half from the dad, and the half that they get from their mum is a 50-50 chance of the two strands, all female worker ants and soldier ants, and remember the majority of the colony, are 75% related to each other. Yeah. So they're more related to each other than we are to our sisters, to our brothers and everything else. Making this extreme level of cooperation make sense as you are almost identical. Yeah. If one of you dies, the genetics of the sister are basically the same. So this high level of shared DNA without being clones, because if they were all clones, they'd be susceptible to disease and everything that comes with just being a genetic copy. But this method creates a, a huge population workforce that is 75% identical and the same to each other. So your individual thing stops mattering. Yeah, because we should reiterate that evolution acts on all levels of life from the organism but its fundamental point is it uh, evolution acts on genes yeah and that's what the selfish gene and all that sort yeah. of stuff detailed is that evolution is about genes finding a way to get into the next generation and they basically use all of the life that we see around us fungi plants animals as their vessel yeah to get into the next life yeah um so as long as they are doing that through ants yeah it doesn't matter that yeah. the individual isn't reproducing yeah because 75 percent of their genes are all shared yeah that is mad it's a mad solution yeah. but it makes sense yeah pens down we're back on track <laughs> so like i said let's get back to that number of 306 million individuals living together in a colony in a colony so this colony, in perfect harmony, you social, all these different labor forces, all these different tasks, like you said, you can't really climb the ladder. You could, some scientists refer to the colonies as being the super organism. So it is the colony which is the organism. Yeah. And some have even likened it, in a sense, to, 
you know, is there an argument that humans are? Because like our whole gut biome is all these different bacteria working together. You know, our human cells couldn't exist without those cells. And there's actually a whole load of shit banding together inside us. But, you know, we're not doing that. So we've got these super organisms, but above the super organism, above the colony level, we have the super colony. The super colony. <laughs> Wait, so we've got a colony of 380 million ants. So the 306 million is at super colony level. Okay. Is this like, a, like some sort of megazord where they join together? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what we've got. So we've got big colonies, which are super organisms, or any colony is, is an organism, is basically the organism. Big colonies, you could say, are super organisms, but then we get super colonies, and a super colony appears where a species of ants has many geographically distinct nests, but individuals from one nest can freely move to another nest, and all the workers will cooperate indiscriminately with each other in collecting food and caring for the brood and show no apparent aggressive behaviour between each other. And super colonies have been shown to exist in less than 1% of the 14,000 ant species. Okay. But when they exist, boy, do they fucking exist. <laughs> and the absolute queen of super colonial species is the Argentine ant, whose colonies will continue growing so long as there is suitable space for them. And it's an invasive species in much of the world, <laughs> which I've written here, we could say as places that aren't Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> Don't write that down, listen. Oh, get your pen, write it down. <laughs> pen back down. So, until 2000, the largest super colony of Argentine ants was one in Japan that consisted of over 45,000 individual nests with an estimated 1 million queens and 306 million individuals across an area of two, basically three square kilometers. Wow. And what that means is if you took one individual ant from way, way, way at one end and picked it up and threw it in the colony way, way, way at the other end, it'd just slot back into its yeah. role, crack on, fine. They wouldn't identify it as a foreign ant, as anything like that. Yeah. But... This took a huge jump in 2002 when researchers described 30 of the 33 Argentine ant populations that exist along a 6,000 kilometer stretch of the Mediterranean coast from Italy round to Portugal as comprising a single super colony. You could have picked up an ant in Italy, dropped it off in Portugal, and it would have slotted in and they wouldn't have recognized it any differently. So they're, they're saying it's an empire all the way from Italy through to Portugal along the Mediterranean coast. But then, in 2009, researchers declared that the largest super colonies in Japan, California, and Europe were in fact part of one all-encompassing global megacolony that rivaled only humans in its scope of world domination. Stop. Stop. What, so they're all one colony? Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess if you're moving them, like, because if they are invasive, yeah, and they've just been moved around by humans, yep. Then if you're, if 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 they all just exist as one, yep, and then you move them to Japan, yep, they are still gonna, you know, they've come from somewhere. They've come from an ancestral colony. But like I said, in the case of Europe, we've got thirty out of the thirty-three population. So basically, if you imagine in Argentina, there were five original ant colonies, yeah. and three of them got exported in different places for whatever reason one of those three has become more dominant than the others but the british empire of ants but that that 
ant empire. One ant from that original population went to Europe, one ant went to Japan, one ant went to California, one ant went to Australia, and in each of those areas became the dominant Argentine ant. But because they're all that 75% related, because they're so close, the pheromones and everything on themselves are that, yeah, if you take an ant from any corner of there and introduce it to another one, they see themselves as part of the same brood, part of the same colony, part of the same everything. So, you know, we're all going to die. When are they coming to Britain? They could be here already. Dun, dun, dun. I wanted to now look at some crazy ant behaviors. Wait, you're just saying we've not looked at any crazy ant behaviors. <laughs> what's, what's the last story of not crazy ant behavior? Well, that was crazy ant biology, yeah. crazy ant numbers, yeah. crazy ant genetics. But now we're going to look at some of the shit they actually get up to. Because not only do they make slaves, as we've said in the past, they also make propaganda. And this is just our first example. So we've been on a podcast recently, assuming this comes out, or if it doesn't, it will be out very soon, with Alice on her show, Arsehole Animals with Alice. And we spoke there about ants. You should check out the show. And you gave a quick recap of the slave-making ant, which we've spoken of before, but I wondered if you could just paint a quick picture here. Yeah, so for anyone who wants to uh, hear more about this, do go back and listen to our episode on parasitism, I think it was, when we covered it. It's very early days. Yeah, I think it's uh, the first season. Um, But uh, there we talk about slave-making ants, and basically there is uh, a behaviour that has evolved in multiple species of ant where they will conduct raids into surrounding nests and they can be nests of the same species or they can be nests of other species and they will take ants larvae so they're basically like sort of kidnapping they'll take ant larvae sometimes they can take adult ants as well and they'll bring them back to their nest and then they'll basically brainwash them to become part of their colony so that they work for them even to the extent where that if they then lead a raid back on the same species that the slave is then the slave will you know, go and capture slaves of its own kind. Which is that further extent is the propaganda element that they basically brainwash victims of a colony to attack members of its own colony. Yeah. So that's insane in how ants can attack and confuse each other essentially. But how can ants defend themselves, which is closely aligned to the above. So just a quick run through of what ants are up to. Right, we've got bullet ants, the most painful sting of any insect. Yeah. We've got the jack jumper ant, which possesses a sting that is lethal to humans. Do you want to take a guess at where that ant is from? <laughs> is it nature's thunderdome? It's Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only ant which can kill people lives in Australia. So, is that lethal, like from a venom? Because, it, like, the bullet ant is always the ant that gets spoken about when it comes to like. But pain and death. You know, like, I don't know if getting hit by a tank shell hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Having a building fall on you probably doesn't hurt. The jack jumper ant. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. We've got the trapjaw ants, which possess the fastest appendages of any predatory animal, able to snap their jaws shut at over 200 kilometers an hour. They can snap them shut with such force, they have been observed using them to catapult themselves away from threats, as well as to yeet intruders away. <laughs> We've got the Malaysian species, Colobopsis sondersi, which can explode its own head in a kamikaze last stand, spraying poison across any attacking intruder. What the fuck? 
Yeah, and not just in an intruder sense do ants display behaviours to defend their colony, but the species Catalacus muticus in Southeast Asia, which form their colonies in tree hollows, if the workers see it flooding, they respond to it flooding by drinking the incoming water and running outside to spit it back out there. So ant defensive, so ant offensive behaviours range from propaganda, slave making. Then we've got stings that kill everything. Then we've got defensive behaviours like kamikaze head ants. Yeah. Then we've got defensive behaviours like being able to manage water ants. And in terms of defending the colony, how do different colonies make theirs? Some of them are digging them under the ground. Some of them are in tree hollows, as I mentioned. But then we have army ants, which just rove across areas nomadically and will form structures with their own bodies that can float just by banding together. We've got two species of weaver ants, one in Africa, one in Southeast Asia, who create nests by pulling leaves together with their bodies and then using, checks notes, their larva to produce a silky glue which sticks them together. Their babies, Jack, are prit sticks. <laughs> And they don't just build nests, but they will regulate the temperature and humidity of their nests, such as wood ants in Europe, which can control the internal environment. So now we've got a giant colony, a big old nest. It's being defended by all these mad ways. How are ants going to feed their colony? Well, don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it because they farm. Yeah. <laughs> Leafcutter ants in the tropics don't bring back the leaves to eat. And we see these at the zoo. We've encountered them, and you'll be hearing all about our encounter with them coming out soon in our trip to Mexico. But they rather bring these eats back to cultivate a fungus. That is mad. Like, what? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> what? Ants can farm. And it's not just random leaves that they bring back, but they literally tend to the fungus. And if a type of leaf is shown not to be favoured by the fungus or cause harm to it, they will stop collecting that leaf. Oh, so they're constantly assessing the little fungus gardens and mm -hmm. being like, oh, the fungus likes this one. Let's go get yep. some more. Yep. And it's not just fungi they're farming, because why not farm another animal? Several species of ants have a symbiotic relationship with aphids, so we're farming aphids now. Livestock farming. Exactly. Aphids feed primarily on the sap from plants and secrete a liquid called honeydew. Very, very sugar rich. It's very favoured by the ants as a food source. And as a result, a system has been hashed out between these insects. Well, I say hashed out between them. I imagine the ants just took control <laughs> because they're a world conquering super force. But the ants will herd the aphids around to the juiciest parts of the plant. They'll protect them from predators and they'll carry them into their nests at night and for winter. Oh, wow. Yeah. And in return, they, quote, milk the aphids, stroking the aphids with their antenna, coaxing them to secrete that honeydew, which is then lapped up. I mean, it goes on That's, yeah. and on and on. And like we mentioned, uh, the different castes in ants, worker, soldier, and all the rest, in the ones that farm... There are then even further castes. So in farming ants, some will just specialise in shepherding the aphids. Really? Yeah. And there's even some evidence that ants build pastures of a sort to keep the herded aphids in. How? Don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I have got something around the corner in terms of how ants can control their environment. Okay. I mean, it just like there's so much ant content. Honeypot ants where members of a colony will become living larders for the other ants. So what? you mentioned ants have that skinny waist and yeah, then the yeah. bulbousy back bit. 
So in honeypot ants, specialist in the way that bees store honey in cells, yeah. honeypot ants have members of the colony who become living larders. So their waist, their whole their abdomen, abdomen just hu- becomes huge. Like it's like uh, I've seen pictures. Let's say gooseberry size, but yeah. then the ant body is like normal ant body so or whatever. It can't move. It just hangs off the ceiling. And when workers of the colony or soldiers want want a little snacky snack, they go and give it a little tickle, and it will secrete a little honey for them. That's a bit grotesque, isn't it? It's it's something. Yeah, yeah. What a life, right? But I mentioned the pastures. Yes. So I want to finish up with two examples of ant plant interactions. This first one is one of the maddest things I've ever read. Right. And we've read some mad shit on this. We have read some mad shit. The lemon ant from South America. Right. This ant lives in the hollows of its host tree, Duroya hirsuta, Mm -hmm. and act to defend it. So people picture a tree covered in spines, holes in the spines, the ants live in the holes. If something comes, they run out and attack whatever's trying to eat the tree. But not only do they defend the tree, but they change the landscape around it. They create what's called a devil's garden. Oh. The ants go out of the tree and repeatedly sting all other surrounding plants to overload it with their venom, killing it off with formic acid to remove the competition of their host tree. Oh, wow. And clear areas of the forest in the Amazon so that only their host tree can survive. They literally weed out the forest and you will get stands of hundreds of trees that are just the one species of ant living in. And researchers estimate the largest of these gardens to be a stand of over 300 trees on roughly two tennis courts area of the Amazon. And possibly that it's been there and established for over 800 years. Whoa, that's wild. Yeah. And they're just stopping any other plant growing. Yep. Competing with their host. That's cool. Yeah. That is, and the local, it's the local kind of native tribes who call these things devil's gardens. Because if you got lost in there, <laughs> you're surrounded by spiny, spiny plants, which have their own private militia. <laughs> like, absolutely not. We should get them into deal with like knotweed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then recently in Panama, and I know I've just rattled off fact after fact after fact, but we could, you could, I mean, people do write theses on ants, right? This is a whistle-stop tour in how completely insane they are. In Panama, it's been observed for the first time that ants have patched up holes in their host tree. So a similar thing where you've got a tree that has natural tubes in it for ants to live in, and researchers drilled holes in the tree and the ants came out and like with chewed up other bits of plant plugged the holes and patched it up and it was measured that it quickened the tree's recovery rate in closing it up itself medical medical ants yeah exactly right we're near the end Uh i've got one last story for you right arguably this is the first story because all the rest were facts (laughs) oh okay. okay This is the story of Joan Murray. Joan Murray. Joan Murray. Born 1951. Is Joan Murray an ant? N- uh, Joan Murray was a skydiving enthusiast who survived a free fall of 700 feet, hitting the ground at 80 miles an hour, over 125 kilometers an hour. Splat. She I have, survived. I have no idea where this story's going. <laughs> yeah. Now, thankfully, 
Doctors were able to get to her and she survived the impact. She sustained several shattered bones, required 20 reconstructive surgeries and 17 blood transfusions. But she would have been dead had it not been for ants. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Can you take even the slightest swing at how an ant colony may have helped her survive her fall? So the the only thing I can think of is that she landed on something. Yep. Like a nest or... Yep. I, I think it's got to be a nest. Yeah. I, I think... I'm going to say she must have landed on some sort of giant ant's nest. So that's what I thought it was going to be as well. And it was so vast underground, maybe yeah. they had hollowed it all out that it cushioned the fall. No. She landed bang smack on a nest of fire ants and they stung her so many times that her body produced enough adrenaline oh, fuck off. to keep her heart pumping until the doctors could arrive. Oh my god. <laughs> Even when ants are helping, they're just fucking hardcore. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a fate worse than death? I haven't a clue what that fate is. But, like, had they not pumped her full of venom... Her heart would have just kicked out from the injuries, but there was so much ant juice running through her that her body's reaction was just, you know, turn the adrenaline up to 11, and that kept her heart pumping. That's literally... To get her to the hospital. Out of the frying pan into the fire, isn't it? Into the fire ant nest. Into the fire ant <laughs> That's extraordinary. And that Jack Baddams is ants. Yeah. A tiny... Sliver, frightening sliver yeah. of the ant world. <laughs> and I just want to say, I think we've said it before, if you do know stuff about ants, mm. we want to talk. Yeah, if you can get us to see ants. Yeah, if you know where we can, if you could take us to see cool ants, if you can tell us about ants, Yeah, we want to know. But if your suggestion is skydiving into a nest, <laughs> a polite decline. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with the Birder segment. So for anyone who doesn't know what Birder is, Birder is a birdwatching app which encourages you to get outside, enjoy nature, see birds, log birds, join a birdwatching community. And they are very kindly sponsoring the show, which is fantastic. I use it. Uh, It's really helped me get into birdwatching more than six years of friendship with Jack (laughs) Adams. So do with that information what you will. Yeah. And it's free as well, (laughs) which I'm not. (laughs) So. <laughs> you've got to you've got to pay for pay for badams and we've been doing this birder segment for a while and this week jack badams it is called in a segment i'm calling birder on the orient express <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i like these i like these ones was that one of yours or sent in so sent in was the vibe that we should start using birder so birder on the dance floor was sent in which we've already heard and then you know it was made aware to me that we should be plumbing the the murder the murder vibes okay yeah so birder on the orient express is today's segment fantastic and for the birds that we've got today well bird and then subsequent one they are two which we've both seen together and held in the hand really this is exciting because we are warming up for our mexico episodes yeah so the bird which joins us this week 
Jack Baddams, yeah. is the Ruddy Wood Creeper. Oh, the boy. <laughs> so the Ruddy Wood Creeper, if anyone knows tree creepers in the UK, in as much as these birds which really cling to the bark and exploit that niche and hop around, the Ruddy Wood Creeper is that, but for Mexico. And the wider sort of South Mexico to Northern Colombia, so yeah. good bit of Central America. Jack Baddams, Ruddy Wood Creeper. Uh, imagine... Yeah, like you said, uh, a bigger tree creeper or creeper if you're in America. It's got the same hair color as me. Yep. It's red. It's yep. ruddy. Yep. Um, its name is like mine. It, the ruddy wood creeper. <laughs> yeah, it looks like me and it sounds like you. Yeah. Is maybe the best thing. Uh, but we, uh, like you said. I think that's a terrible field. Like, you're right. It looks like Jack Badham sounds like Roddy. <laughs> and sounds like some sort of like old timey English. Like it's just stolen a pie from a bakery and someone's yeah. shouting after it down the street yeah ruddy wood creeper um it is uh a bird that we when we were out in mexico would commonly turn up in the mist nets when we were yeah. doing bird surveying and they were pecky and scratchy and not particularly enjoyable to handle yeah they were they were grumpy fidgety yeah. angry madness yeah but the one thing i didn't know about them and that i'm guessing you possibly didn't know is that they've got a really interesting symbiotic relationship with ants. Not a clue. So they are found close to ant swarms, not to feed on the ants, but to feed on everything that the ants flush out. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool, isn't it? Yeah. So now we're bringing all the strands together. Yeah, tying it all together in a neat little bow. Exactly. So they're following the ants as they're on their raids or whatever, I guess. Marching or... around the bark. Yeah. Flushing things out. Hmm. I, I think a really wood creeper, based on our experiences with them, are a perfect accompaniment, accoutrement <laughs> to the ant. <laughs> yeah. They have ant swarm attitude. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Another really cool thing about them, which we got to see when we had one in the hand, mm -hmm. was their tail, which is similar to the tails on uh, tree creepers and woodpeckers, where they're reinforced. Right. Um, so they've got like a their their tail feathers, the central spine shaft down the middle is is reinforced so that the as the wood creeper is going, if you imagine it going up the tree, and then they hug the tree very closely, and their tail can basically rest on the tree and act mm -hmm. as a, as almost like a little tripod, so that they can they're able to rest a bit on their tree. And I remember when we caught one, we were you know touching the tail, and you could feel the 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 strength and spine. How so? Are they reinforced not with bone? Obviously, no, no, no. It's, no. it's basically just a thicker shaft of feather, right. which means that they're able to support, yeah, some weight. Yeah, nice one. So the ruddy wood creeper. If you're out in uh, between South Mexico to Northern Colombia, do head check mm -hmm. it out. See if you can see one. But as Jack mentioned, you know, follow it up by logging some of its sister tree hugging birds. <laughs> go find a woodpecker. Go find a tree creeper. Go find a creeper. Yeah. Which is a weird sentence. <laughs> but um, download Birder. The link is on our Instagram page. The link is on the show description on Spotify and all the streaming platforms to get Birder. As Jack mentioned, it is free. Download the app, get outside, get logging birds and get into nature. It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted on Instagram by Sherry Maskell, and it is the red panda. Ooh. Let's get to know our foe. 
Hailing from the eastern Himalayas and southwestern China, the red panda is an arboreal mammal famed for just being really damn cute. Hmm. It's, they're a bit cat-like. In fact, their genus, Aeolurus, means cat. Uh, and they can grow up to about a metre in length, including the tail. Cat means cat. Yes. <laughs> what the hell is Aeolurus? means cat in science. Feline. Science language. Feline means cat in science. It's probably, it's probably Latin. Greek. Uh, yeah, I just, I, just, I just thought we'd kind of... Everyone had agreed we were running with feline. <laughs> Not the panda. <laughs> yeah. So they can grow about a metre in length, including the tail. Uh, and they have dense reddish-brown fur, black belly and legs, a ring tail, and just a really cute little white face. It says here that their weight can be anywhere between 3.2 to 15 kilos. Jesus. Which is quite the range. Yeah. It must be like one pretty fat zoo panda or something yeah. like that. Like, it's quite the big range. But there are two different subspecies. There's one that's in the Himalayas, I think, and one in China, uh, and one of them just get bigger than the other one. Hmm. Um, now, here's the thing. The red panda is not closely related to the giant panda at all. In fact, what the red panda is related to is a bit of an evolutionary mystery. But recent evidence puts it closer to things like raccoons, weasels, skunks, etc. The red panda is actually the original panda, the OG. Hmm. Red pandas were known only as pandas for 40 years before they were given the name red panda to distinguish them from the giant panda when that was named subsequently afterwards. As mentioned, they're not related at all, the red panda and the giant panda, but they do share a similar love for bamboo as their primary source of food, and both of them possess elongated wrist bones, which act as thumbs uh, for them to be able to hold that bamboo and eat it. The giant pandas is a little bit more uh, developed, but red pandas have got that too. Hmm. Just like the giant panda, the red panda is a carnivore that's turned largely herbivorous. Uh, although it will eat eggs and small birds and mammals that they might come across, bamboo is their jam like they're fully on board the bamboo train just like the giant panda is but the problem is having a gastrointestinal tract of a carnivore has meant just like the giant panda that they cannot properly digest bamboo so they have to eat a lot of it to get the nutrients they eat they eat well over one and a half kilos a day and food can take up to four hours to pass through their digestion system that being said its metabolic rate so how active it is really is still similar to that of other mammals for its size, so we're not talking sloth or koala levels of lazy. Like, it's not getting much nutrients from what it's eating, but it's still able to go around pretty well. And it's actually 17% more efficient at digesting bamboo than giant pandas are. So suck on that, WWF. <laughs> Pick the wrong logo guy. <laughs> and finally, just any of its abilities and weapons. Despite being Master Shifu in the Kung Fu Panda films, I couldn't find any scientific papers detailing their skills at martial arts. <laughs> but as an arboreal mammal that spends most of its time in the trees, it does have curved semi-retractable claws on the end of very long flexible joints that can bend in all sorts of ways to allow it to climb trees. Uh, its tail isn't prehensile, but it does help it have really good balance while climbing. So its main skills is that it's good climbing up things uh, with its sharp claws. So, Roddy Shaw, bearing all those things in mind, how many red pandas are too many red pandas? Do you know, I was listening to that, mm. and honestly, I think I hate red pandas. Do you? Yeah. Oh, why? Just here, there, what is the point? Because <laughs> I, I know you're not a fan of the giant panda. Yeah, I'm not a fan of a giant panda, but like, I've, I've known that in me. I've, I've never had as visceral reaction to one of your rundowns of an animal. 
as I have just now. I mean, just... Do you know what? I actually hate it more than the giant panda because it's as useless but hasn't even spun its PR or got mm. some branding going. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was the original panda and it's let that slip yeah. to a second place panda who has then gone on to do wonders with the title. It would be like finding out that Virgin Coke was actually made before Coca-Cola. Something like that. Yeah, Pepsi came first. Yeah. Or whatever. You know? So, they have to die. Wow. That's, listeners, I can hear you bristling. <laughs> I can hear the, uh, the, the outrage. How, how, how can something so different be so convergent? Right, let me restart that because that's a bollock sentence in the world of science. Because the point of convergent <laughs> evolution is that things are different in the first place. What I mean is, convergent evolution, in, if you take the hedgehog and the hedgehog tenrec, they look like identical. Yep. They're on different sides of the planet and the hedgehog is bumbling around in Europe and it's like, ooh, I'm going to eat grubs and shuffle around and be spiky. Yep. And then in Madagascar, there was another thing which was like, ooh, I'm going to bumble around and eat grubs and be spiky. Yep. Bit, bit, bop, million years. They look identical, nothing related yep. whatsoever. Vultures, American, I've mentioned it before, I think on the show, vultures in the Americas and vultures in Africa, Europe, whatever, also not related at all, look very similar. Yeah. But the red panda and the giant panda don't look anything alike, yeah. but are equally functionally useless <laughs> and have abandoned reason and logic. <laughs> like, why would they both... Yeah. And they're not even, like, that that far removed. You know, they're close enough geographically that, yeah, you would think they're related. Yeah. It's not like red pandas are in Chicago. The, the, <laughs> the only thing I can think is that it must be because they're living in these massively bamboo-dominated landscapes so it's just like you've got this animal you've got these two animals that have evolved to exploit a resource that nothing else is exploiting particularly and once it's there like you know we're seeing them on a trajectory of evolution where over time they are only going to get better at utilizing bamboo yep like newsflash for the red so, pandas <laughs> we don't have time like, the sea levels are rising now, so just go back to eating bacon. <laughs> Although they are in the Himalayas, so to be fair to them, they're going to... They're going to go last. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but yeah, no, it's a good point. I guess they're, they're probably maybe more similar to things like anteaters and aardvarks, where they're similar, they've got similar things going on because they're exploiting a similar resource. But yeah, they're not quite as far as tenrex or vultures. Yeah. And then how... How do we... I, I never quite get it when they're like, we don't know where this goes. Surely we've tested the genetics. Like, surely it tells us something. Like, yeah, how so, are we that... Yeah, so basically, the, the most recent genetic evidence suggests that they are, yeah, more closely related to uh, raccoons, weasels, etc. But the, there was nothing more confirmed than that. Are they particularly endangered? Are they as endangered as the, no, their giant brethren? No, they're not as endangered. They are. They're not, you know, they're not doing great, but they are far less endangered than the giant panda. Okay. They're a zoo favourite as well. Every, all zoos have got them. Yeah, zoo favourite, Instagram favourite, social yeah. media favourite. They, they like a good meme. Have you seen the one where they get scared by a rock? And it stands and it up. it stands up. Ah! Yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Just grow a pair, would you? <laughs> How are you going to live in the Himalayas and be scared of a rock? It's the biggest rock. <laughs> if, if I know anything about the Himalayas, it's basically the planet's biggest rock. 
This is what I mean. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Not having it. Okay. Right. I think this is very much a mental game. Okay. Because I want to crush them. Right, yeah. And and I think what I need to do is take them to some kind of World Wildlife Fund, not exhibit, like conference, yeah. seminar, summit. Some kind of wildlife conservation summit mm-hmm. where the panda logo oh. is going to be everywhere. Do you think they're really bitter? This is what I'm... I think this is the leverage that we need to go for. Yeah. Is to really expose their own ineptitude at losing like they lost their own name. They should have like, just trademarked it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even understand how they can live with themselves. Yeah. Frankly. Yeah. You know, to be the original panda and then have some bumbling fucking idiot come in and take your crown and become the poster boy for conservation the world over. Yeah. It's just shameful. Yeah. That being the case, I might just want to take on all giant panda, red pandas. <laughs> how how did it go down? How do the red pandas? Because you know they're they're a decent sized animal. It can be a meter long. Surely, also though, do we invite them to a screening of Kung Fu Panda? I think that's just going to give them ideas. But I'm trying. To, we need to draw all of the red pandas to. Okay. I see. This is the thing. The leverage here, or we do some kind of like fly. Maybe I rent a plane yeah. that has one of those banners behind it, right. which is like giant pandas number one. <laughs> <laughs> Just fly that over the Himalayas a couple times. You could go. You could go into the Himalayas, like into the bamboo jungles, with like a little with all the all the giant panda merch you've got the t-shirt you've got like the big glove with the point with the pointy yeah. finger that says like pandas number one exactly and you've got like the hat and you've got the scarf and you've got you're like giant pandas number one fan even though you're not yeah you know it's all a ruse obviously play the game yeah 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 and in london you get people like you know um soundcloud artists or whatever <laughs> will put stickers at like traffic lights you know and you get these traffic lights that are just covered in stickers advertising whatever bamboo in many ways, is nature's traffic light <laughs> yeah. in terms of pole. I've always said it. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I just think there's good opportunity in the bamboo forest to just okay. put stickers of pandas all over. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely it's a it's a game of advertising. And here. You, you could advertise like the giant panda fan club meet. Exactly. Happening here at Mandu. Yeah. Six o'clock. Yeah. Next Wednesday. Yeah. So then, obviously, the next thing is that will that will crack them mentally a little bit. Yeah. They'll start to wobble. That fear of rocks is going to bubble up. They don't like rocks. And where are they? The Himalayas. Yeah. Surrounded by rocks. <laughs> the biggest rocks. Yeah. So then, so alongside the pro-giant panda multimedia campaign, yeah. there'll be a second sort of less uh, public-facing campaign, yeah. which will be erecting signs just like Big Rock. Right, that way okay, yeah. just pointing out the you know everest biggest yeah. rock ever yeah. award 2023 yeah and basically we just carpet bomb their habitat with this propaganda campaign yeah and then i imagine the red pandas will just sort themselves out <laughs> frankly just the shame of it will cripple them they'll just slope back into the they'll, they'll run back into the into the bamboo woods exactly hide never to maybe they'll rebrand Maybe they will. Maybe they'll find a new name. Maybe it'll backfire tremendously and they'll go back to being carnivores and then I'll be (laughs) super fucked up. But for the moment, I'm targeting mentally breaking the entire species (laughs) through a press campaign. (laughs) Any sort of numbers? How many many flyers can you print? How many stickers? 
How many stickers can I print? I did a flyer drop once for work, and I think I got round 300 houses. Okay. I think I delivered like 300 leaflets okay. in a day or something. I've got no idea if that's good or bad in the flyer world, but that was a lot. Yeah. But that was too, that got like a kind of a neighborhood. Of, so yeah, to be fair, if I wanted to carpet the whole bamboo forest, yeah. I'm going to need some sort of volunteer hours. <laughs> yeah to sign up to this campaign and join me yeah so if any listener wants to help this is the first fight with a shout out to see if anyone else wants to get involved with taking down <laughs> red pandas but basically i'm going to put there'll be a there'll be a mailing list a sign up form we'll see what the numbers of volunteers are to help with the leaflet drop yeah and then me and whoever joins up are going to go out there and try and mentally break the red panda population for being such a shameful animal <laughs> there we go join at this link <laughs> And there you have it, listeners. Before you go and sign up in Roddy's crusade against the Red Panda, all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for listening to this episode of How Many Geese. Please go check out our pals Birda and their free app. It's been great to see so many people engaging with it and using it off the back of hearing about it on our show. We're going to be back next week with our final episode before we hit the Mexico specials. And next week is a pretty special episode in itself, as we're going to be heading down to Navy Command to look at some pretty cool marine creatures. We'll see you then.